Welcome to the season 3 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through an in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author Dr. Sandeep Pai and senior energy and climate journalist Shreya Jai. The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar and is presented by 101 Reporters, a pan-India network of grassroots reporters that produces original stories from the rural India. India's green energy landscape has witnessed remarkable growth and transformation in recent years, positioning the country as a global leader in the clean energy transition. With a growing population, rapid urbanization and rising energy demands, India recognized the need to diversify its energy sources and reduce its heavy reliance on fossil fuels. In order to understand the changing landscape of the green energy sector, and the country's ambitious energy transition goals we interviewed mr shrivatsan ayer global ceo of hero future energies he has held executive roles in exxon mobil braxim and mckinsey and company and have successfully expanded their business to other countries Thank you so much, Mr. Ayer, for joining us here at the India Energy Hour. We are very delighted to have you here. We have had several discussions on the Indian renewable energy sector, obviously because this podcast focuses on India's energy transition, its climate goals, and everything. But as it happens with every new and budding sector, something or the else keeps happening in it. So uh, I, I thought that as the sector changes its phase, you know, in ten years it has come from. 2 gigawatt of solar and some barely 15 20 gigawatt of wind to you can see where we stand right now we are aiming at 500 gigawatt of renewable energy in the coming years and also the whole industry landscape has also changed you have come into the sector i must say at a very right and a vibrant time and you have come with an outsider view and now you're pretty much an insider uh, working with one of the leading companies uh, in the sector uh, So, so I thought that it would be great to have you to speak with us here today. Very good. Thanks for having me. You know, enjoy our conversation uh, and look forward to you know having, let's say, a more in-depth conversation on where India's energy transition is going. Great. But before we get into that, uh, I, I believe I and also our listeners want to know a little bit about your journey. Where are you from? I know you have shifted countries. Uh, you have changed sectors, and you're here in this uh, green energy sector. what brought you into the sector first of all and where are you from what did you study Just tell us about yourself please sure so uh starting almost at the beginning because i think it makes more sense by trading i'm a chemical engineer uh so i finished my uh, studies here in india in 1990 and i moved to the us for graduate studies uh spent some time you know getting masters and phd and i started working for exxon mobil back in 1970 in r&d and research on chemicals and and plastics 
uh, moved to a, a business-focused uh, role uh, or business development type role. Got my MBA along the way uh, while I was still working. And right after that, I switched to uh, business consulting. Uh, I, I joined McKinsey in, in Houston in the U.S., and spent five years with them working primarily in the energy and chemical sector. And when I say energy, it was almost all hydrocarbon energy, oil and gas, electric power, but based on hydrocarbons. And I spent time in various geographies as a consultant uh, in in India, in China, in Canada. I had almost a year and a half or two years in Brazil uh, and the rest of it uh, consulting with clients in, in the U.S. Post that, I actually joined one of my clients, which was a large chemical company based out of Brazil that I had consulted for, I joined them in 2010 when they had just moved into the U.S. through an acquisition. And I stayed with them for 10 years, spent time, started obviously with them in the U.S., uh, went and spent three years in Germany uh, with the same company. And right after Germany, I was, I'd say, what I describe as expat light. In other words, my family was in the U.S., but I was working in Brazil. So I was going back and forth, uh, spent about three years doing that. And of course, that was about the time COVID hit and you know everybody was working out of home. And uh, for those of you, I guess, who are not very aware of the petrochemical industry, 100% of the economics of petrochemicals depends on oil and gas. So we spent quite a bit of time from 2017 on looking at what was happening in the world of energy transition, especially looking at uh, solar and wind, looking at electric vehicles and what that was going to do eventually to oil and gas demand globally. And that kind of piqued my interest in what was happening in energy transition and uh, Spent, of course, time looking at that outside in, not as part of the industry, clearly, but clearly the implications are enormous for all sectors outside of uh, renewables as well. That was the time this opportunity came by to you know, join Hero Future Energies, which seemed intriguing because I had spent, you know, 30 some years in the US, you know, Germany, Brazil, but I'd never actually worked in India. So I left India in 1990 and never actually worked there at all. The time I spent there was living there was really just as a student. So it was a sector that was intriguing. It was a country that was intriguing. And I say intriguing because India is really on the, on the cusp of you know, tremendous growth in all fields of economic activity. So it, it seemed to be the perfect time to you know, shift country and shift sector, both of which are on, on the verge of takeoff. And so I joined uh, with, I'd say, a fairly superficial knowledge of renewable energy, other than knowing that you know, it was growing all over the world and you know, it was going to have a, a, a major impact. And so that's how my journey started about two years back. And... Uh, you you do you, you started off by introducing me as an insider. I still feel like a rookie. I still feel like I learn something every day about the sector. And I'm glad to have a wonderful team at Hero Future Energies of industry veterans. Some of them have spent, you know, a couple of decades in the India power sector. Some of them have spent a decade plus in renewable energy. And they teach me every day, right? So I'm fortunate to have a team around me that knows a whole lot more about the sector than I do. I have a quick kind of light follow-up before we, you know, kind of get into other stuff. With you, you know, like uh, having spent so much time in the petrochemical and the fossil fuel sort of sectors, you jumping to the renewable side of so is this a trend that global executives uh, are, you know, jumping ship from the fossil fuel side of the story to the renewable side of the story? Or, you know, it's just your one-off kind of story? I think for fossil fuel to renewables, I can't think of very many examples. But if you think of people uh, who are expats who are moving into India after having spent the bulk of their working career outside of India, that seems to have become fairly common. And, you know, I like to think of myself as one of the few, but as I spend more and more time, I know there's many, many companies that are doing that, both in conventional as well as in the renewable energy space, right? They're bringing in people from outside of India 
uh, with experience either in renewables or in other sectors as well. Now, the move from oil and gas to renewables, clearly the, the big oil majors have kind of been moving in that direction for, you know, about, I'd say, close to a decade now, Shell, BP, Total. Uh, and what they've done is clearly take their talent pool and move people from their conventional energy to, to renewable energy. But the world of renewable energy IPPs, I think, is still primarily made up of people who grew up in the conventional power sector, whether it's coal or, or what have you, and then transferred them or you know transitioned them to the renewable energy sector. You guys probably have a wider view of how the IPP sector in India is. I'm not sure there's very many other people who have moved from oil and gas into renewables the way I did, but there may be a few other examples. But I do know, you know other companies in India are hiring expats with, let's say, different backgrounds into the renewable energy space in India. So a great note to kick into our topic of the day. Good that you started uh, the uh, thing that we uh, there's a lot of change happening. A lot of companies are hiring expats and, and you know widening their expertise. Before we get into the how the sector is changing, there's this very interesting point that you yourself said in an interaction, and, and I believe you have said that quite a many times that plain vanilla, solar, and wind is not of any use in this country anymore. I might be saying it in a very rudimentary language, but plain vanilla, solar, and wind is something that does not excite major players anymore. Can you elaborate on that? What are the reasons that have led to it? Uh, and what exactly is the business case of plain vanilla solar and wind and why it doesn't work anymore? I think there's two primary reasons. One is uh, the more you build a plain vanilla solar and wind, the more intermittent you make the entire system as a whole, right? So you actually accentuate the, the disparity between the times when they're generating and the time when demand is actually required in the market, right? So on the one hand, you look at that and say, I keep building it up to a point, yes, but then beyond a point, it actually doesn't, help contribute to a solution, but it actually might actually create a problem. So I think that's really part one. Part two is like every other industry, like like every other sector, plain vanilla, solar and wind have become commoditized, right? It's a pure cost game now. Provided you have access to the right resource, which is the land with the right radiation or you know the land corresponding to the high wind speed, everybody has this more or less the same capabilities, the same skills, and they beat the tariffs down to you know what I call bare bone levels, right? So to a point where some players, I would argue, may not even cover their cost of capital, right? So uh, I guess in a race to add capacity, one has to question whether the returns are even worth bidding in that case, right? So the economic case is not as strong. And secondly, the future of the electrical system in any country, and especially in India, is not dependent on plain vanilla, solar and wind anymore. Do we continue have to build those? Yes, we do, up to a point. But I think in the future, in, to make the grid more robust and to make sure that we can actually get round-the-clock power, we have to look at different technologies, whether it's hybrid with storage, whether it's short duration storage or long duration storage, whether it's a peak power or a load following. But these are the new types that have to come up just to meet the demand pattern over a 24-hour period, over a 365-day period. Right. So I think that's why you see more and more IPPs kind of shifting because if you look at the new Seki trend right, of bids, even they're moving in that direction. right? So the plain vanilla is still there, but certainly they are emphasizing a lot more of these, which is really needed, A, to meet the demand, and B, to make sure that the grid is still robust. So on that, I have a you know, follow-up. I mean, is there really a business case for hybrid around-the-clock army at this point? If I understand it correctly, the cost of capital is the main initial investment that goes into any RE project. So now if you're installing both, let's say, solar and wind together, won't the cost of capital be even higher? And Linked to that is our consumers, I mean, whether it's industrial or, you know, 
household consumers are they willing to pay more you know to i mean this is like an investment into the grid and into the future right so do you think there is a business case and then whether people will be willing to pay a bit more to accept that kind of hybrid power no so let me split the two questions let's just talk about plain hybrid and then we'll talk about hybrid plus storage now if we talk about just pure hybrid the capex is more but the tariff is still very competitive and in the end you have to compare your tariffs to the cost of the next best alternative right and if you look at the marginal cost of power production in india for example it's probably thermal generation that's dispatchable power most likely based on imported coal right now i, I may be stretching it a bit but the marginal cost of that on a dispatchable basis is actually very high so if you were to come in at a pure hybrid which is solar plus wind which gives you higher cuf and it's not going to be around the clock for example but certainly covers more hours than just either a pure wind or a pure hybrid you're still competitive i'd rather still pay for hybrid based even though the capex is high because the tariffs are still going to be lower than coal but those tariffs will still give you a good return on the capital invest so let's go to the next question what if i need to expand that and make sure that i can cover my peak power needs uh, evening needs for example or if i need to do around the clock right that's when storage has to come in now whether that storage is a long duration energy storage like pumped hydro whether it's a short duration peak power storage like battery it's different there the tariffs are going to be a little higher i would say relative to the marginal cost they're still not that bad huh? they are kind of on parity but the main thing to remember is that the cost of storage is actually declining let's call it about 15% a year almost right and that that's the trend over the last 15 years and that's been the trend for solar pv modules as well so there's no reason to believe battery storage won't continue that trajectory to a point where solar plus wind plus battery storage or solar plus wind plus pumped hydro for a peak power around the clock would still be a lower tariff than a dispatchable coal based or god forbid in some countries natural gas based power right so economics are still favorable now the capex is higher but then the tariffs will be higher but as long as they lower than my next best alternative you know it's economically feasible to to invest the capital and and still get a healthy return just trying to summarize the last two of your uh, answers uh, you said that you know obviously it makes sense to go for hybrid and hybrid plus storage but you said that in some way uh, plain solar and wind might also be needed so but given that we are running into hybrid we're looking at solar plus wind solar plus wind plus storage there are also re plus thermal also being planned in some cases but that increases the level of challenges that the sector already faces storage being one of the biggest challenges you can address solar separately but it also accentuates the challenges that the sector faces when you start merging technology merging energy sources so uh, as an ipp what is the risk reward ratio in hybrid yeah so there's two types of challenges right one is the challenge to the ipp in designing the appropriate combination of solar wind and storage to be able to meet the needs at the lowest possible capex right so in other words i want to maximize the amount i, I supply to the grid at the least possible capex the other is the overall challenge to the whole grid system right as a whole now the more storage i put i would argue actually it's better for the overall grid system right because it it gives a certain amount of predictability to the grid and i don't think india is too far behind when large battery storage projects will start to provide ancillary services to the grid as well in terms of voltage or frequency regulation and so on i think that those days are coming uh, those are already there in in western europe for example in the uk where providing that ancillary services is a revenue stream and india it will come to and i think the next possible evolution in india now i don't know i'm just projecting or, or predicting what might happen 
is you could see a, a more natural evolution to time of day tariff differentiation, right? And that is the time then I think battery role of battery storage becomes that much more important, right? Now, pricing is actually a very valuable tool to moderate demand, right? Today, as consumers, whether I'm industrial or sitting at home, I have no incentive to reduce my power consumption any time of the day, right? For me, I'm indifferent, right? When you start getting time of day, people are going to be a little more wary in terms of, you know, when do I charge my car? When do I charge my phone? When do I, you know, turn on the appliances and so on? Because the peak power really is a way to also moderate demand, right? And make people a little more careful in terms of how much power they consume, which brings down the demand at peak hours and, you know, moderates it a little more across across the, the day as well. So if India evolves in that direction, then you'll start to see a little more moderation in that as well. And so I expect to see a combination of these factors actually combined to provide, I'd say, the grid stability in India and what storage can then offer, right? What either battery storage or long duration storage like pumped hydro can offer, both in terms of providing competitive power, when I say competitive at a good tariff, uh, but also make sure that the grid is stable. On this note, I wanted to ask you, uh, what is the grid maturity or preparedness for all these new technologies? Uh, till yet, we are just, uh, the grid is currently handling just 100, 110 gigawatt of renewable energy, which will invariably increase. And then with it will increase the instances of fluctuations and, and everything. Hence, the hybrid model makes sense that there's a 24-hour supply. You can peak it whenever you want. But as someone who feeds into a grid, as a company which feeds into the grid, uh, what is your impression of the grid preparedness uh, for these new technologies? Uh, uh, there, there were plans, just addition to that, there were plans to have dedicated renewable energy management center, better forecasting, better planning. At what stage is this? Uh, just give us a image of how the grid uh, absorbs renewable in this country. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things, right? One is the overall energy demand in India, the, the projection is actually quite robust, right? So we're going to be consuming a whole lot more energy going forward just on a secular basis independent of the whole trend of electrification of vehicles, this, that, and the other, right? So just because the economy is growing and, and you know, the, the population is growing and, you know, they're getting to more middle class. So the grid has to, A, just keep up with growing demand, regardless of where the power is coming from, whether it comes from thermal or renewable, doesn't matter. So we need grid investments, both to expand and to upgrade, right? So that's a given. Next is, is that demand growth going to be met? What combination of dispatchable power, and I say dispatchable, you know, thermal, versus, I'd say, intermittent like renewable is going to uh, contribute to that demand growth. The good news is, I think in India, we are starting to see the roadmaps set by the power ministry, by CEA and so on, that recognizes that A, power electricity demand growth is going to go up and B, a larger and larger fraction. In fact, the, the target is 50% renewals by 2030, right? And so that's a very ambitious goal. And so I, the roadmap that they've set is to invest in grid expansion and grid stability in order to make that happen. And that's why I see a, a pivotal role for storage there as well, because you can invest in grid, but in the end, there has to be mechanisms that moderate the, I'd say, the impact of intermittency, which literally happens from a second to the other, right? So intermittency is not, you know, at 12 noon, the sun is shining, and, you know, at 5 p.m., the sun sets. The intermittency is at 12 o'clock, the sun is shining, and at 12.05, a cloud moves over the sun, and your particular location, the generation literally drops significantly, right? So I'm talking intermittency literally at a minute by minute level, right? And that's where I think the role of storage is going to be really important. We can always talk about forecasting and scheduling. I'm sure the world has made leaps and you know, strides, lots of strides in forecasting and scheduling. It's still going to be as much art as it is science, right? 
Now, we all forecast and schedule India for the last three years has seen wind resources that have been significantly below our long-term forecasts, right? Uh, solar, in particularly in south of India and Karnataka, has been significantly below normal radiation levels over the last three, four years. Minute-by-minute uh, minute or, you know, day-ahead forecasting is still as much art as it is science, right? So we can't depend on improvements in forecasting and scheduling alone. We have to have mechanisms that allow for grid stability at the aggregate level. Now, clearly, the CEA is actually asking IPPs to make sure that at the individual plant level that we put in place the correct mechanisms, for example, the reactive power mechanisms, better forecasting and scheduling, and the way they incentivize that is by having these uh, large penalties for deviations, right? But it's more important to do it at the macro level because at individual plant level, like I said, if a cloud floats across the sun at my little location in Tumkur, right, my particular site, suddenly the generation drops, right? But as a whole, we, we need to make sure that that happens. And battery storage is going to play a role there because at some point, battery storage is not just going to be, I supply two hours peak power at night, but it's going to be when there's variability at on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, can the battery storage jump in and provide the necessary services to the grid, to stabilize the grid. And that kind of market is it's already there, for example, in the UK and, and in the US. I think it's a, it's a matter of time before it's there in India as well. Great. You mentioned something, and I think that has been part of many conversations right now, is trying to move India towards time of the day pricing. I, I think that is perhaps going to solve many problems. So because we have you know a wide variety of audiences here, first, can you just explain what that means? What is time of day pricing? Uh, and second, like if India starts to implement time of day pricing, like will it help renewables? Will it create more challenges? If you can explain that as well, that would be great. Yeah. So I think time of day pricing, for example, when we buy power as a consumer, we are charged on a total consumption per month, right? And what time of the day I consume it is really not the, the factor, right? Now, I, I, there are exceptions in India. There are actually places where this, the peak power tariff is a little different from the, let's say, during the day tariff, right, or non-peak hour, but the differential is really small. The other is what I call dynamic pricing. For example, what you see in a market exchange is the power price is really set at the time at which you deliver power to the exchange, right? So if I deliver at 12 noon versus at 6 p.m., the tariff I get on the exchange is very different. And it really is a question then of supply and demand, right? What is my shortfall at peak? And what is, quote-unquote, the willingness to pay at that point, right? And really, time of day is, is, that's why it's required because it has to be one more element to incentivize people to moderate their demand, right? Otherwise, like I said, I have no incentive as a consumer. I come in in the evening, I turn all the lights on, I turn the TV on, I turn every appliance on because I don't have to think about why am I doing that? Whereas if I were told that the tariff between you know 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. in the evening is two times during the day, then I'd say, okay, some of these activities I'll try and do in the middle of the day. That way I don't have to you know pay twice the tariff there. For renewables, again, I, and I talk about the whole sector, right? Uh, it's better not just for renewables, but for the whole sector and also for grid stability. If there's a little more moderation in terms of what the demand is during the day, and there's a little more predictability in terms of what people are going to do. Now, time of day tariff does not take out peak hours. Peak hours is still there, and you'll see that in every mature market. It just moderates it a little more, right, and makes it a little more predictable, as opposed to I'm not using that as a tool to moderate people's behaviors, right? So I think it will help the entire sector. I don't, 
see necessarily it is this benefiting the RE sector, and you mentioned, but I think it benefits the power sector as well as the grid, right? And because that way you don't put undue stress on the grid every evening at 6 p.m., right? Which is what we see in a lot of places. And I'd like to change uh, the gear of the conversation uh, here a little bit. Uh, uh, it just this is my observations as as a trend. Uh, you can disagree as well. Uh, but I, I'm seeing all around that major renewable energy companies in India, be the be the Indian companies or foreign companies operating in India, uh, are not just solar and wind energy companies anymore. They are kind of building a supply chain of their own. Someone's getting into manufacturing, batteries, some are building transmission, or some are doing all of it possible. So why do you think this shift is happening? Uh, I know self-reliance is a very key business mantra, especially for a newer industry like this. Uh, but have there been some harsh lessons on the way, vis-a-vis especially manufacturing availability of domestic uh, local content? W- did that lead to it? Uh, and what kind of business sense does it make for this shift to happen? No, g- great question. So I think there's two reasons for this to happen. And the first is, uh, as the conventional renewable energy sector got more commoditized, and actually you saw that, the, I'd say, I hope, we saw the bottom of that two and a half years back when tariffs were actually what one rupee ninety nine, I think. I mean, it's some unbelievably low level, right? And at that level, you barely cover costs, right? Forget about making a return investment. And I think a lot of the IPPs looked at that and said, "Look, if that's the level of tariff, how do we actually create value for shareholders? How do we actually make money on on the capex that we invest? And are there other places in the entire value chain? Now, if I were to break the value chain into generation, transmission, and distribution, are there other places I might be able to go into?" to create value. So one was driven by that, right? Are, are there opportunities where there is a margin to be had? Uh, and so do I want to, for example, this transmission companies that moved into generation, there's uh, generation companies that moved into distribution, right? So the, the, for example, privatization of the discounts. The second is, I think the last two years, partly COVID driven, but partly global supply chain issues and, and disruptions, there's a question of both cost and reliability, right? Can I actually get the components where I need them when I need them, right? Can I actually get the solar modules at the price that I want, but also at the time when I need them, right? And I'd say uh, about a year and a half, that December, January timeframe, there was massive shipping disruption. Shipping costs were almost 6X what they were under, I'd say, normal times, right? A container, you know, was at $12,000 a container rather than 1,500, which is, I'd say, more of a normal price. Uh, and that was a wake-up call to many saying, uh, we're relying on global supply chains that is not only 30 to 60 days long, but where the price volatility can go anywhere from 1500 to 12,000. Do I rely on that or do I bring the supply chains closer to home? And India specifically, I think there's also this whole issue of geopolitics, right? And I'd say barriers, right? Whether they're tariff or non-tariff barriers. Tariff barriers, 40% BCD, you know, ALMM, etc. Plus the whole geopolitics of, you know, do we want to be reliant on, on a China supply chain? Would we rather, you know, is this of national interest to us and therefore we need to build here? So clearly the reason, at least in the solar module, is taking as an example and batteries again is, A, we want to be self-sufficient because this is an area of national interest going forward for India. You, know, you This is, in a way, it's like saying, how can I become self-sufficient in oil, right? Which you cannot. You either have the reserves underneath your ground or you don't. But in the solar and batteries, you can say, yeah, I can, right? If I build... Uh, polysilicon to modules, and if I build a lithium mining to batteries, I can actually build the entire value chain. 
and I don't have to be dependent on geopolitical constraints or supply chain barriers uh, or you know monopoly power of certain companies right who who might control global supply chain. So I think it's a mix of all of these that is causing IPPs to go ahead and say, a, let me diversify and make well money elsewhere rather than just building RE plants. B, even if I want to build RE plants, if I integrate myself, I can make sure that I get the most economical benefit of having the components, as well as supply security, as well as, you know, I'm not at the mercy of geopolitics or global supply chain disruption. So it, it's a mix of everything. And that's why you've seen a lot of companies, you know, clearly Tata and Adani were already there, but then Reliance has got into it, Renew has gotten into it right now. We know Avada is investing in, in new module capacity. And that's one of the reasons I think IPPs are looking into into going that direction. Okay, I, I just want to shift the conversation a little bit so we touch that before we come back on this supply chain train. Um, we we talked a lot about like you know the predominantly grid scale and you know solar and wind and renewables. But where does distributed renewables come into the scene? I mean, they are uh, are they like the stepchild that you know everybody loves to talk about, but you know, nobody really wants to focus on, forget about hero, but in your personal opinion, like, where do you see the role of distributed renewable energy and what needs to happen? Because for a country like India, it makes so much sense for that sector to, you know, grow. I mean, I believe it makes so much sense. You can disagree, of course, but, you know. It's a great question. Uh, I'll probably address it two ways, right? One is I tend to agree with you. I think distributed RE generation and potentially a year or two or three down the road, distributed generation with localized storage, I think is could play an enormous role. Now, case in point in the US where you see distributed energy, in fact, I have several friends of mine who call themselves grid independent, right? In fact, some of them over an annual basis actually come out positive because they send more to the grid than they actually draw from the grid. That's because they've got rooftop solar plus battery storage. And some of them also have, you know, an EV attached to it, right? So when the EV is attached to your house, it acts both to send power as well as to draw power, right? So, but that takes into account then millions and millions of what we, I think the term used was prosumers, right? They're producers and consumers. And at a moment's notice, they can do both, right? They both provide to the grid either services or energy and, you know, or draw from it, right? I have a feeling that that, is a critical role because the days of building a giant power plant of you know two and a half gigawatts in one location and then having these enormous transmission lines take it all over is one model. And that's the way the conventional thermal was built. That's the way RE is being built. And the other is to say it's distributed manufacturing. I produce energy where it's needed, when it's needed. And the challenge then is how do I take these millions of independent producers and consumers and tie it so that the grid doesn't collapse. In the US, it's a little more mature and advanced, partly driven by, I'd say, the risks involved, right? The the Primarily the financial and the credit risk, right? The system set up in the US is, is far more mature because of decades of, I'd say, the system being there to, to assess consumer credit risk and so on. India has got millions of rooftops, right? So whether it's homes, whether it's office buildings, whether it's flats, the top of the flats and apartment buildings, the risk on, on the flip side is still high, right? Can we understand the credit risk of the individual homeowner, right? Are they actually going to pay on time? Are they going to actually take care of the equipment, right? Soiling loss in India is significantly larger than in any other Western country, which means the individual homeowner or flat owner has to make sure that they actually take care of the equipment that they have, right? Because otherwise it's very hard to say, I'm going to visit 
10 million homes every week to to you know clean the the modules is is not a model that's easily replicable right but i really think the potential is enormous and at some point the attractive wind and solar sites in india are going to get more and more challenging to find to build the 250 megawatt plant or the 500 megawatt plant it has to be replaced by this the good news is the corporate sector is starting to do it there's several corporates who are working with who are saying first priority is build as much as i can in house either rooftop or if i have two acres next to my plant or five acres next to my plant you know i'll put a one and a half megawatt plant right there and that's the kind of distributed generation that we are seeing driven by the corporate sector the residential sector i think is still slow the commercial sector is not thinking about it as much as we'd like the large malls movie theaters hospitals office buildings i think they should be the next ones who kind of jump into this and say yeah it's i can probably build 500 kilowatts and no more but it's still you know economically viable and if i were to connect it potentially 2 3 5 years from now to a battery storage i can reduce my dependence on the grid potentially at some point even give it back to the grid if necessary i i really look forward to that happening at least cni sector residential sector i think we're still a little far from in india for i think primarily for operations and credit financial reasons not for technical reasons the reasons that you're giving us uh, makes me think that should dre take the route of say say a scheme like ujwala or saubhagya where the government took the lead of bringing these connections or lpg cylinders to the households uh, obviously uh, corporate and private companies had a role to play in you know providing meters and you know other services but it is the government which takes the lead because then you uh, take care of the risk that you just uh, mentioned do you think that kind of model would work in dre could actually as an intriguing thought uh, certainly i think government has an important role to play there uh, i think the other factor now that you bring it up that could help is if there were a time of day tariff introduced in india right so people get into homes and say man my power bills are really silly and they're crazy high if i could only store or generate in the evenings and store it a i can sell it back to the grid if i want to and make some money or i i, I don't depend on them right i've got enough power to last me through the evening peak hours when i need to uh and so we need an economic incentive for the individual homeowner consumer to say i want to do it plus i think the government needs to step in to mitigate the what i call the individual consumer credit risk as well so perhaps it's a combination of both great i wanted to ask you something uh, which has been intriguing me for quite some time this term called green molecule on every press release that i get from green energy companies and otherwise this green molecule seems to weigh very heavy and this seems to be like big part of big plans that the green energy companies are getting into i understand uh, you know theoretically what it means but can you explain what green molecule is uh, exactly please yeah i think it's a nice interesting term i actually uh, i found it fascinating that whoever came up with it came up with it i think of it as basically a way to move green electrons right that's all it is now green electrons can only go on transmission lines on 220 or 33 kv lines right and whereas green molecules can actually be transported by conventional means and can be transported across the world right but it's basically i'm transporting renewable electricity in a different form and i think that's the way i think of green molecules right but let's take a look at it in the context of the overall decarbonization world so there's really two goals here one is re100 which is i want to go to 100% renewable energy and india has got its own targets for that but decarbonization can be achieved at roughly let's call it 50% if i go to re100 the other 50% of emissions actually come from sources 
that today are not mitigated by just going to renewable energy or renewable electricity, let me put it that way. Right? It still comes from industrial heating, it comes from mobility, whether it's cars, two-wheelers, three-wheelers, buses, trucks, ships, airplanes. And of course, as I say, the industrial uses, which is really heat, right? Today, 50% of those emissions come from burning something. I burn coal, I burn natural gas, LPG, petrol, diesel, fuel oil, whatever, right? The green molecule really has a role to play in taking that other 50% of emissions and decarbonizing that to zero. So one way is to say, I'm going to electrify mobility and industrial, right? Clearly, electric cars and electric two-wheelers have a role to play. So, you know, you can take care of that. But there are parts of mobility and industrial energy requirements that cannot be met today with electricity, right? For example, buses and trucks uh, is a trade-off between do I actually go EV or do I actually burn something else like hydrogen, for example. And industrial heating actually requires heat and electrical heating is still not there. So I still need to burn something. So then the question is, do I take renewable electricity, convert it to green hydrogen, and then burn hydrogen to provide the heat I need in a steel plant, petrochemical plant, aluminum plant or whatever. And I think that's why people are looking at that very seriously because uh, if I have to decarbonize the entire system, I do need alternate fuels or alternate forms of energy. And green molecules really can provide that. Technically, they can provide it even today, right? Technically, if I could make all the hydrogen I could at economically reasonable costs, I can get rid of LPG to a large extent, natural gas to a large extent, potentially even diesel in trucks and buses to a large extent, right? Uh, clearly, investments are required. I'm not trivializing the technical barriers, but the basic guts of the technology exist. Uh, however, now what we have to do is to make sure that the technology becomes more robust and becomes cost competitive, all the way from producing the green molecule to using it in its end use. Great. Uh, just picking up on the green, uh, you know, molecule question, and just you know, poking you a little bit on that. Um, I mean, do you really think that this is a more of a PR exercise and you know, feel good or is it also a way to channelize ESG funds or climate funds? You know, I mean, people love these terms and coins and things like that when you try to tap that kind of market. So, just in your honest opinion, what what do you think? I mean, this is this is good rebranding, or this is also this will also bring some dollars to India, or it doesn't align at all. So, I think there's two things to it. One is it's a fear of missing out, right? If everybody is talking green hydrogen, I can't be the only one not talking about it, right? I, I have to be A, talking about it, B, trying to do something with it, right? And part of that is if it does become commercially viable, I cannot be left out, right? I, I need to be able to participate. And B is, like I said, technically, there's no other single solution that exists to decarbonize, I'd say, 50% of the world other than green molecules, right? So, but at the same time, the economic gap that exists today between green molecules and conventional molecules, whether it's natural gas, LPG, diesel, fuel oil, there's still a pretty large competitive gap. And countries around the world are trying to figure out how do you allow that gap to be met over a period of time and phase out that support so that they become competitive on their own. Right? The, the IRA in the US, for example, which gives you fairly significant you know, credits and tax credits, where at least theoretically, green hydrogen is a dollar a kg and conventional hydrogen is more or less the same. Right? India is far from there. Right? So at some point, the government has to step in either through a use mandate or through providing some nature of support. Uh, or the corporate sector has to step in and say, yeah, the, the economic viability is still not there, but we will start investing slowly. The only way to bring costs down is to invest and do it, right? Because it's an experience curve. Now, if everybody sits back and says, call me when it becomes economical, it'll never become economical, right? So at some point, somebody has to take a leap of faith. And that's what the FIT regime did for renewables in India, right? 
uh, I wouldn't say India, actually, in anywhere in the world. It basically said, yeah, the tariffs are not fantastic if I let you lose. So we're going to make the tariffs worthwhile. But then FIT tariffs were at, I wasn't in India that many years back, 15 rupees plus, I think, uh, in renewables way back, a decade back. And the last auction, as I said, closed at rupee 99, right? So, but that was because the support was given, right? And you saw that improvement in competitiveness. And I think grain molecules requires absolutely the same. Now, there is a lot of excitement, but I think the excitement is A, driven by the promise that the economics will be met one day and the hope that people are going to invest in making that happen. And I call it more than hope. I really expect that people will, but we're still waiting to see, you know, the devil is in the detail, right? To see how the economic gap is going to be met and by whom. Uh, on that, you, you mentioned that not everyone can, you know, sit back and think that when will it become economical? Some have taken a lead. Uh, uh, I, I'll now uh, ask a question about Hero Future Energies. Are you treating uh, with caution into all these new spaces? Uh, we have not seen uh, very aggressive announcements from the company on all these newer sectors, green hydrogen being one example. So, uh, not here asking you to share your business secrets, but uh, what is the strategy for a company like yours? Uh, because you have been a conventional player. We have not seen a trend of very, very ambitious tariffs come from the company. You have had a success in a lot of projects, but what is the strategy going forward given that the sector itself is churning uh, itself uh, right now? Yeah. So we've been working on green hydrogen close to two years now, a little more than two years now. And we've done a lot of work understanding A, the technology and understanding B, the economics. And C is we're looking at green hydrogen and potentially its derivatives along multiple use cases. So we're not restricting ourselves to for example, I'm going to produce green hydrogen, green ammonia, and export you know million tons a year, right? So that's that's a single value chain. We're actually looking at where all can green hydrogen go? Can it be used? What are all the different use cases? What are the economics of each? What are the technical barriers of each? You know, clearly we we will focus on bringing a few projects online, and these are going to be more what I call pilot projects, where we invest on a small scale with uh, a customer use it at a customer location in the actual end use, right? So it's not going to be, I build a hydrogen electrolyzer next to a solar plant and vent the hydrogen to the atmosphere because that really doesn't address some of the technical challenges. And as and when, you know, we look at opportunities that make economic sense, whether it's for export basis, for example, if you can find somebody who's willing to sign an offtake agreement for green ammonia, right? Would we look at green ammonia? Absolutely, right? In the meantime, we are understanding the sector, we understand the technology, understanding the economics moving ahead with doing one or two pilot projects. I know there's been a lot of very ambitious announcements that have come, you know, but we'll announce when we're sure we're going to do something, right? We're not going to announce ideas. We will not announce intentions. We will actually announce when there is a project, right? So I think that's kind of the approach we'll take. Let me ask you a really big picture question, just zooming out and like thinking more like long term. I mean, I've seen many modeling studies that kind of show that if India were to achieve a net zero, then you know you need something like five thousand, six thousand gigawatts of solar and three, four thousand, <laughs> thousand gigawatts of wind. Uh, we are really right now at you know one fifty, two hundred. I mean, is it realistic for a country like India to achieve that scale? Like, what would be some of the challenges you think to achieve that very ambitious goal? Twenty thirty target seems still very easy when you think about five thousand, you know, eight thousand. So what do you think would be some challenges and what are the big opportunities? Yeah, yeah. so no, great questions. I'll start off by, I think this McKinsey study that came out probably earlier this year or late last year, which basically said 75% of India has not been built yet, right? In other words, 
the economic growth that we expect uh, in the country over the next 30 years is all new growth, right? It's all new development of infrastructure, of, of everything else. So India has a unique opportunity to actually build all that with sustainability in mind. So it's not a question of, I've got coal plants and, you know, why am I going to shut it down to build renewable? It's like, no, I need a lot more power in India. So I need to build a lot more energy. Am I going to build it using coal or am I going to do it using renewable? So uh, whereas in more mature economies like US and Europe, it's a question of replacement because the growth itself is a little more, I'd say, at secular levels, right? It's one and a half to two and a half percent. So the discussion there is very different. It is, I already have an infrastructure base. You're asking me to destroy it and build a new one. And then the whole question becomes, what is the return on, on capital? But as in India, we're not saying we're going to destroy what's the old. We're just saying, anyway, we have to build for the future. What are we going to build? And so the economic business case is very different in that case. Secondly, can India do it? Now, clearly, there's lots of factors that say, yes, we can, in theory. Uh, what is the solution going to look like? It's still unclear. And I think it's going to be a all of the above type solution. There's going to be large ground-mounted projects, solar and wind. There's going to be offshore wind that's going to have to come. Uh, there's going to be distributed solar in a large way, both commercial, industrial, as well as residential. If we think that there's a silver bullet that suddenly magically, you know, a million acres is going to be freed up and, you know, we can build these thousand gigawatts, we know that's not going to happen, right? Because India has fairly unique challenges, not in terms of availability of land. I think the land is available, but the challenges that accompany it, right? And certainly, very logically, the sector is picking off the best areas first, right? Let's focus Rajasthan, Gujarat, you know, Maharashtra, MP, Andhra, Karnataka, and you know, so on. At some point, you're going to run into constraints there and you have to then expand, right? And I think the government is doing the right thing to say, let the first expansion be offshore wind. And what are the best areas? It's, you know, offshore Gujarat, offshore TN. Uh, and I think that's the way at least a conceptual roadmap has to be built. It cannot be very specific because we all know there's going to be twists and turns along the way. But it, can India do it? Absolutely. Is it going to be easy? No. Are there going to be fundamental changes needed? For example, land reform, right? I, I would certainly love to see that. Are there going to be fundamental changes needed in the way we invest in grid expansion and grid stability? For example, taking into account more distributed generation? Yes, I think that has to play a critical role. The good news is I think the policymakers in India understand that and they're not betting on one solution. They actually clearly see that it's going to take a combination of all of this. Uh, and, you know, change in a country like India is, you know, going to take a little bit of time, right? Fundamental changes like land laws and making it a little more uniform around the country and, you know, making it easier for industrials to access land, investments in, in infrastructure, whether it's be substations, evacuation or, or transmission, all of that is going to take time. So, I'm very optimistic, very hopeful. I think the aspiration is the first part of the battle, realizing what do I need to do. Second is, do I have a roadmap that leads there? And I think that's being put together. Third is, is the availability of capital, both private and public? And I'd say answer is yes again there. One potential bottleneck that I see is availability of talent. Now, we think about, you know, we're not even 100, are we a 100 gigawatt sector yet? I don't think so, right? Not quite. No, just about there, right? Plus minus. If you're going to be a 1,000 gigawatt sector, do we have the trained skilled manpower to do that. And I'm not talking about the manpower that goes and does the construction. It is the engineers that design plants. It is the engineers who come up with the new technologies, who maintain it. I think that could be a bottleneck, though India, again, is the single largest source of engineers in the world, right? However, are they being trained on these technologies? Or are they being trained in what I call conventional engineering technologies of the past? And I'm not an expert in the education sector in India, so I'm not going to hazard a guess there. 
but I would really say I think that could be a place where we start to see a, a bit of a bottleneck. But I'm pretty sure that that will be eased as well going forward. That is actually a great point. Uh, a lot of people do not uh, acknowledge this. Uh, we keep talking about just energy transition and how it would impact jobs in the fossil fuel sector without realizing that there are not enough good people to employ in this sector because it's a pretty new sector and uh, you cannot have typical software engineers who were uh, part of this startup uh, revolution that came in this country. You would need a specialized expert. So, so thanks for raising that. Apart from that, uh, and this is my favorite question, uh, especially to corporates, what are these uh, just top three of your mind? Uh, three uh, policy recommendations that you would like to give, which would kickstart our journey, you know, or rather accelerate our journey towards a 500 gigawatt or a net zero or whatever comes to your mind. So first thing I would say is policy consistency and certainty. When I say consistency, it's consistency across how it is applied across the country. Now, it is a concurrent subject and that leads to all kinds of complexity. But the issue with the private sector is I do something in Karnataka and the regulator in Gujarat sees it a completely different way. And it's the exact same regulation. So what we really need is uniform consistency across the country, right? And as a sector, we always say, give us rules that help us. And yeah, that's an ask. For me, it's more important is give us rules that are uniform and that we can understand. That way, there's no doubt and uncertainty because if any doubt and uncertainty in policy automatically restricts the amount of investment that goes in. Next is policy certainty. If you put something, make sure it's there for 20 years because we invest for 25 years, right? We, we put all the steel in the ground and you know you put the $100 million day one. If after year five, you say, oh, the PPA is now a different PPA, right? Or now it's suddenly no longer open access because the rules have changed, right? It's too late for us to do anything because the investment has already been made, right? And you will restrict investment if people don't have visibility of what's going to happen for 25 years. Third is... Now, there are competing needs here, right? Which is one, we talked about security of India as a country to make sure it's it's integrated back into the component manufacturing and so on. But every benefit that you give one sector of the industry has repercussions and implications for other sectors, right? Do I like ALMM and BCD? I'm not a big fan of either one of them, right? Now, why do we need both of them, right? Clearly, you need to incentivize and spur industry, but all of these policy interventions need to come with a sunset date. And it should be a predictable sunset date, which is BCD is there from year X to Y, ALMM is there from year X to Y. And then after that time, compete with the rest of the world, right? And be competitive. Otherwise, prices in India are artificially high. And anytime prices are artificially high, you can see global investors look at that and say, why would I invest to get return X in India when I can go to Chile or Brazil and get a return of Y because the costs are lower, right? And so if you ask me the top three, I think these are the three, right? From a policy standpoint uh, that we'd really like to see if we have to get to this 500 gigawatt, 1000 gigawatt, 2000 gigawatt aspirations that we have. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Those are very concise points. Thank you so much, and Thank you for being so frank and, you know, really articulating all the answers, also going into the basics of some of the questions I asked. So really appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate it and really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the India Energy R. Subscribe to this channel to never miss an update. To drop us a feedback, visit our website or write to us at theindiaenergyr at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. You can follow at TIEH underscore podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at Shreya underscore Jay and at Sandeep Pai with a double I.